Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. Uh, it's good to be seen. Uh, I know uh, we've all been uh, battling through this seasonal illness, and uh, I'm thankful for the Lord's provision in the health of those present uh, here this morning. We continue to pray for those that uh, are unable to gather with us for those reasons. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. I have a uh, somewhat difficult task before us this before me this morning as we're going to address such uh, high things as the doctrine of God, um, such mysterious things as to God in his divine being. And I often, when I think about this, and especially as I think about preaching it, uh, I liken it to something I've never done before, uh, but will speak with uh, somewhat only pop culture authority, and that is uh, mountain climbing. Uh, I imagined with me the face of Half Dome in Yosemite, and we're going to climb it together. Some of us have been climbing the face of Half Dome for a time, and we've uh, made our way up, and we've secured uh, footholds and handholds and uh, places where uh, we, you find crevices and you put your carabiner in so that if you were to fall, you wouldn't fall all the way down to the bottom. But imagine this morning as you are climbing it, and I imagine that, or I don't presume to think this, but I think it may be common uh, that I'm ahead of you as it relates to the doctrine of God and understanding these things. And as I am ahead of you, even if in the most recent years and months, I've garnered a better grasp on this doctrine. And so this morning, I entreat you to come uh, to the ledge where I stand. Though there is uh, the analogy breaks down in that the doctrine of God is not to be summited. There is no top to the doctrine that we can all stand and say, look, we have arrived. We all understand and comprehend God completely in himself. For then we would be gods ourselves. And uh, more rightly, we would actually have made God into an idol of our own making. And so I don't attempt to summit God in that way. But as it relates to these things, we recognize, I recognize that uh, there is a drawing up that I desire for us to do. And just like any difficult task that you've entered upon in your life, it's going to take uh, some thought, some intentional thought, some thinking about difficult things, some learning definitions, some uh, reorienting yourself to certain truths. And so I think it is a worthy cause to do so. Um, I was uh, thankful for a, a conference um, message that I recently received where the pastor exhorted uh, mainly young people that if they're able to learn the intricacies and backstories of their favorite movie characters, he likened it to Star Wars, and I think he even talked about Pokemon. Imagine that. Uh, but they know all about it, and they know the backstories of it, and you know your favorite characters. How much more then should we seek to understand God as he's revealed himself to us. And so this morning, this is my task, and I pray the Lord's grace upon it and your charity with me. So 
to bring us to the point where we're at in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, we have worked our way through this letter. We've seen that God calls his sheep by his word, that Jesus builds up his sheep with that word, intending that the glorious riches of the Father are seen and seen in bringing dead sinners to life. And finally, here in the second half of the book, it's clear that Jesus re- rules his sheep by his word, kept in the bond of the Spirit with all prayer and perseverance. And it was the last time that I was before you a few weeks back that we began to look at Paul's fourth exhortation here in the latter half of Ephesians chapter 4. This is his fourth exhortation in what could be viewed as a series of five, whereby he has uh, given specific exhortations to believers, and it's rooted in, in the doctrinal truths of the first three chapters. Paul doesn't enter and engage in chapter 4 through the rest of the letter in these practical helps and leave behind the doctrine that he's established in the first three chapters. And so what we will recognize is that uh, Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, intends for them to be encouraged in Christ, to see the practical helps that they have in the gospel of Christ as it specifically relates to this morning our speech. In verse 29, we read that let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth for such, for only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. We recognize that this positive precepts, precepts helps us focus our attention towards speech that violates the second table of the law, specifically against the sixth and seventh commandments and as it specifically relates to brothers and sisters in Christ. Before we uh, get to our passage this morning, I want us to see that or uh, be reminded on how we addressed verse 29 the last time I was before you. We saw that there was a speech that must be avoided. We saw what it was, u- what it was useful for, or what, what is to be used, what speech is to be used, and what is the end of such our goal. The v- speech that we were to avoid was harmful speech. Harmful speech, which uh, this word unwholesome is a word that means rotten, a speech that destroys, a speech that erodes, a speech that is uh, damaging to the body. What is the speech that is to be used is is speech that is edifying. Simply that which builds up, whose aim is to bring or increase life. And that our words are to always be appropriate and never thoughtless. We saw that there was hope and help as it relates to this uh, precept. First in the help, we saw that we were to pray. We were to pray that we would fill our minds and hearts with good things so that by doing so, we water them as soil to the spring forth saplings of edifying speech. For out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So in our hearts, we are to fill our hearts with good, the good things of the Lord so that, so that we would water the soil of our hearts and that out of that would come edifying speech. We were also, as a way of help, given three questions to ask to help bridle our tongues. We were to ask ourselves before we speak or as we think, is, is, as we speak, especially to one another, we were to ask, is what we are about to say kind? Is it necessary? 
Is it true? That these questions could govern what we say to others. It would help, it would help uh, be a help to us if we were to consider if what we're about to say is kind, necessary, or true. But we recognize that the ultimate problem, as I said, of speech is not that uh, we uh, say things uh, in a vacuum, but it's a problem of the heart. And that though we may discipline and restrain our lips, it is only by the grace of God that our hearts would be chastened. And we read how in Matthew 4, Satan tempted our Lord, and the first temptation was one of speech. And we were encouraged, I pray that we were encouraged, the hope in Christ, because Jesus successfully passed his temptation, that he was qualified to be the second Adam and merit a righteous status for us in the eyes of God that we cannot be the second Adam, but we can learn from Jesus. We can learn from Jesus' interaction with the devil and how to defeat sin in our own life. Knowing and believing the word of God is the most effective way to avoid sin and grow in holiness. And that we would endeavor to let the knowledge of scripture, to know scripture well, that we might stand firm against Satan. And so this morning, I ask that you would follow along as I give some context to verse 30 as I read Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 25 through the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to one of you, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption." Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, um, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Let us ask the Lord's help as we continue on this morning. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning that you would attend the preaching of your word That as this word goes forth, it would go forth rooted in scripture, in the authority of your word, that by doing so in the work of your spirit, we may not just be hearers of your word, but doers also, and that we would do so for your glory alone. We thank you, Lord, for you are faithful and true to do all that you have promised. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning as we look at verse 30, as I said, there is going to be something that we must learn so that we may understand and so rightly praise. And so we'll use those three words as uh, by way of uh, to lead us through this passage. So it's something that we must learn so that we may understand and so rightly praise. What is it that we should learn this morning before uh, we engage with this specific verse. Well, here I think is a good example as we read, as we look in verse 30, that it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit 
of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. I think it's a good example of what our confession says in chapter 1, paragraph 7. It says, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. We can read this verse and know what it says, but it is not plain as to what it means, at least in isolation with the rest of Scripture. You may read this verse alone and come to some conclusion as it relates to the Holy Spirit and given uh, some sort of uh, creaturely property of grievance or grieving. And so we would not read it in isolation of Scripture unless Uh, we put all scripture in the category of uh, unclear. Our confession is helpful to say that it is not as though every scripture is the same. For paragraph seven continues and makes clear that the truth found in scripture, that yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place or scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, and a due sense or a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. The understanding is that the gospel is clearly revealed in Scripture to the learned and the unlearned. Paul says that it is for all people, for the Jew and for the Greek, for the slave and for the free. He, he makes it clear that the word of God as it's revealed or the, the gospel of Christ as it's revealed in the word of God is clear to all those, that you don't need initials after your name to understand that. But there are things in Scripture that are less clear than those things. And for those things, the Lord has provided graciously in His church teachers of the Word, as we studied in uh, Ephesians 4, that He has gifted such men to these offices so to lead the church in all knowledge and holiness. And so, what are, how are we to understand what is meant here if we cannot read it literalistically? If by the confines of Scripture, and as we will see, that we cannot read verse 30 in a way that is literalistically, that, that we can literally inflict pain upon the Holy Spirit. And we'll get into the definition of grief so that we may understand that better this morning. So how are we to understand what is meant here if we cannot read it literalistically? I'm glad you asked. Paragraph 9, again, I, I point to our confession. I believe it's helpful as it relates to these things. I believe we believe, understand it to be a summation of the truth taught in Scripture. And so it says the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. And so the first of our text this morning is something for us to learn. We must learn to interpret scripture by weighing verses, especially when it comes to ascribing human emotions to God. We must weigh verses as it relates to God against one another or with one another so that we may understand what is being said here as it relates to the actions of God. First, we recognize that God is, one thing I think we should recognize as it relates to this, that God's not trying to trick us. That he's not trying to say something here and not mean it. We are asking the question, what does it mean? We know what it says. The question before us is, What does it mean? In other places in scripture, we read that God is a rock, that God has hands, 
that God has wings. God is like a mother hen and he covers his people. We know what it says, but what does it mean? And that's the question before us this morning as it relates here to do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Well, I thought it would be helpful, uh, as we said, that God is not trying to trick us, that he has not given us his word so that we'd be confused or not to trust what we read in scripture, but that we would remember especially that our new, in, uh, that especially our new covenant prob- promise, and I'm especially indebted to my friend Sam Renahan for reminding me of this recently, that if we turn to Jeremiah 31, we may come to see that Uh, or that we may be reminded this morning that God promises in his new covenant to uh, reveal himself to us. In Jeremiah 31, a a passage we know well, but it's always important to revisit these passages uh, to remind us, especially on occasions as this this morning. In Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, we read, that uh, God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. In the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sins I will remember no more. That new covenant promise there in Jeremiah 31, or one of the new covenant promises there in Jeremiah 31 is that we would know the Lord, that to know the Lord, because to know the Lord is a prerequisite to worshiping him rightly. We would disagree with any of those people that have um, uh, heretical views of God are worshiping him rightly for if they are using some other text uh, of man to worship him rightly as uh, some of the Christian cults do, or they would deny scripture altogether, as certainly many of uh, those that deny uh, the presence of God or the, the reality of God do, that if they engage in worship at all, it would, be, it would be false worship. And so to know the Lord is a prerequisite to worshiping him rightly. And I say that is not to know the Lord comprehensively, that we can come to a full knowledge of God, but to know him rightly as he's revealed it to us in scripture and as he reveals it to us as where we are at in our own walk, in our own climb, so to speak, uh, of knowledge of God. And that we would see that anyone in the history of redemption who knew the Lord, as this verse implies, knew by the virtue of the new covenant, the covenant of grace. So God reveals himself to his people, and in turn, we worship him accordingly. More specifically, in John 17, Christ says that this is eternal life, that we may know, that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
So even in Christ's high priestly prayer, he prays according to this new covenant promise that, they would, that we would know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And so I thought it would be helpful again as we learn uh, prior to understanding that we would review something we've been learning in our men's and women's study. That scripture relating to who God is are to be controls upon scriptures that describe what God does. So here, for example, so for example, in Exodus 3:14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to those sons of Israel, I am has sent you. Well, what we see is that in this revelation of God, as he reveals who he is, is that God is self-existent. There is none before him. There is none who come after him. And that God does not rely upon anything to be. That nothing, and, and likewise, that nothing can be taken from him, nor does he lack anything so as to be in need. Especially as Paul says in Romans 11, beginning in verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And this, and this leads Paul doxologically or worshipfully to say to him be the glory forever. Amen. Who has first given to God that he might be paid back to him? God waits upon none of his creatures to act. Nothing can be taken from God, nor does he lack anything. He is self-existent. He is I am. Again, we read in Numbers 23, Numbers 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken? Will he not make it good? God is not subject to creaturely emotions, or as the older writers put it, God is without passions. This idea that, that uh, he should lie, nor son of man, that he should repent, reveals to us that God is not creaturely. And uh, we see that God is not subject to creaturely emotions such as regret and repent, as it says in Numbers 23, and we can infer from num- uh, Exodus 3. It was also clear to Paul and Barnabas that a distinction between the creator and creatures are passions. Or, or we, could, we could say human emotions here, but, but passions is a good word, and, I'll, and we'll, I'll explain it here in a minute. Because in Acts 14, uh, when the crowd sought to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods, because they displayed that they spoke for God by signs and wonders. It says in Acts 14, 15, and I'm reading uh, from the King James Version here because uh, it, it translates this word closer to the Greek. It says, And saying, sirs, why do you say these things? This is Paul speaking to the crowd. Why are you, why are you trying to make us and worship us as gods? Zeus and Hermes, we are also, we also are men of like passions with you. 
Now, if you're following along in your Bibles, if you turn to Acts 14, you would have read, probably in your modern translation, the word in your Bible is translated like nature or human nature. We are not men of human nature. We see that oftentimes translation is interpretation. And so that's what's taking place here. And it's getting to the heart of what is being uh, said by Paul and Barnabas by translating it like nature. But the way it gets to the heart can be missed if we overlook the word homeopathis, which is the Greek there, which means like passions. Okay, uh, we, w- we don't have time to get into the Greek and, and, then, and then the Latin and how we get the word passions from pathis. But to say is that Paul and Barnabas are saying, we are like you in that we have passions. We are not gods because he does not have passions. The spirit of God testified through Paul to be divine is to be without passions. There's so much more to be said about this, and there's, there's so much to be expounded with this. And uh, to, to say, though, the least, is that an understanding of passions is to see it as a creaturely reality. And so we recognize that in God there is no creature, that God is fully divine. So God is self-existent. He's not lacking in anything nor subject to decrease and so not subject to creaturely emotions or passions. And so hopefully having learned, let us now understand our verse. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Noah Webster gives four definitions for the word grieve. And I like Noah Webster's dictionary because it's Uh, largely or more fully based upon scripture. He took scripture and tried to define these words. And so he gives these four definitions to give pain of mind to, to afflict, to wound the feelings. Nothing grieves a parent like the conduct of a prolificate child. He says in definition two, it says to afflict, to inflict pain on definition three, to make sorrowful, to excite, regret in and definition four to offend to displease and to provoke there in definition four Noah Webster actually cites Ephesians 430 he gives a definition of grieve that fits the setting or the meaning of our verse though it's normally or let's say though it's um uh usually Meant to give pain of mind. We know what grief is. We know what it means to grieve. We know what it means to receive an inflicting wound or to, to look at something and associate with the pain of it and be grieved in our hearts of it. Richard uh, Sibbs, a late 16th century theologian, rightly observes, though, he says the Holy Ghost cannot properly be grieved in his own person. Because grief implies a defect of happiness in suffering that we wish removed. It implies a defect in foresight to prevent that which may grieve. It implies passion, which is soon raised up and soon laid down. God is not subject to change. It implies some want of power to remove that which we feel to be grievance. And therefore, it is not beseeming the majesty of the spirit 
thus to be grieved. We must therefore conceive of it as befitting the majesty of God, removing in our thoughts all imperfections. So in other words, to attribute human emotions or feelings to God is to violate the full teaching of scripture about who God is. And so we recognize this here is that uh, in this attribution of God, of human emotions, we learn that to grieve the spirit is to disrupt and oppose the work of the spirit in building up of the church and to hinder the work of the spirit in the new life of a fellow believer. So there's correspondence as it relates to the word grieve and the Holy Spirit, but it's not uh, one for one. It's not univocal. We can't say that the word grieve as it relates to us as creature means the same as it relates to God, the Holy Spirit. And so we must recognize that what is actually here is, is taking place. It is true. Scripture is true. But what does it mean? It means that to grieve the Spirit is to disrupt and oppose the work of the Spirit, especially as it relates to the building up of the church and to hinder the work of the Spirit in the new life of the fellow believer. Because we remember or, uh, or we may see that this is connected to all that is said of the work of the Spirit in all of Scripture, but more immediately in verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it would give grace to those who hear. Here Paul is relating these exhortations to the body of Christ. So this unwholesome unwholesome speech is related to speech between brother and sister in Christ, or brother and brother, or sister and sister in Christ. And so as it relates to the grieving of the Spirit here, we recognize that it's immediately connected to uh, unwholesome speech between brother and brother, or sister and sister, or brother and sister, opposes the work of the Spirit in building up the church, because it creates a disfellowship between brothers and sisters or sisters and sisters or brothers and brothers. And it hinders, it can also hinder the work of the spirit and the new life of a believer. There's a wider way of looking at it. If we look at verses 22 through 24, we see that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Those are the last verses before Paul engages in these exhortations. And so we see that to grieve the spirit is to hinder the work of the spirit in, in, uh, in the life, in the new life of a believer. Even wider still, we can go to verse three, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Unwholesome words between brothers and sisters disrupt or do not uh, lead to the preservation of the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Even wider still in chapter two, verses 21 and 22. In whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of the God in the spirit. 
where we read that we being fitted together here by the Spirit so that unwholesome words between brothers and sisters disrupt that. They oppose that. They, they are in opposition to the will of God in the building up of the body. They're in opposition to the will of God in the, uh, in the, in the bringing to life or in, in the living the new life, the renewed life in the spirit, in the believer. What we may also help us understand as it relates to uh, some theological application practically is the allusion Paul is making here to Isaiah 63. Turn with me to Isaiah 63. In Isaiah 63, retells of Israel's, well, it begins uh, speaking of the judgment of God, but it retells Uh, their beginning in verse 7 of Israel's disobedience by which a whole generation, save two, were disqualified from the inheritance. Sound familiar? Much providence has been uh, present in this Lord's Day worship service where we just read about the uh, fulfilling of that in Numbers chapter 26. Specifically in Isaiah 63, we read that he says that he will, I, sh- I will make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness towards the house of Israel, which he has granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindness. In verse 10, though, it says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses, where he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock, where he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness. They did not stumble as the cattle which go down into the valley. The spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. There we see another grieving of the spirit in in their rebellion because they oppose the work of the spirit in the receiving of the inheritance of the land. But here typologically, and so with a greater reality, we are exhorted to act in the present according to our future based on the past. So we're to act in the present according to our future, based in the past. That is, we are to speak edifyingly to one another and not uh, as in disruption or opposition to the work of the Spirit because our inheritance is sure sealed by the same Spirit. So this work of the past is the giving of the Spirit of Christ to his church by, based upon his life, death, and resurrection. And we are act presently to speak edifyingly to one another based on the future reality that, the, that our inheritance is sure because our inheritance is sealed by the same spirit that's been given to us. And so 
Hopefully, we have learned how we are to weigh Scripture, and so understand the verse before us this morning. Let us now see how we rightly praise our impassable God. We are to praise God as we are sealed for the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit of God. A 5th century theologian comments that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit means that both our spirit and our soul are impressed with God's own seal, signifying that we belong to him. By this, we receive in ourselves that image and likeness in which we were created at the outset. You are sealed so that you may be preserved to the end. We are sealed by the unchanging spirit of God who lacks nothing and is not subject to decrease. What greater uh, assurance do we need of our salvation than to realize that we are sealed by an unchanging God who lacks nothing and is not subject to decrease. He's not subject to change. He's not subject to respond to us as I often do to my disobedient children. I often respond in passions to my kids. They, they incite anger in me and, and I respond sinfully in my anger. They, they give me great sorrow and I look upon them in sadness. Thanks be to God that he does not do so to those, uh, he does not do so to us according to his unchanging spirit. But that as we are found in Christ, we are sealed by the spirit. Scripture puts it that we are born new. Scripture push it, puts it that we are a new person. We are new creatures, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We are sealed by the unchanging spirit of God, not by our deeds or even our faith, for that is merely the instrument of our justification, but it is the spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity that unites us to Christ, and so we are seen as righteous as Jesus is counted righteous. Here we see that no outward thing can assure us that we may rest in it. It is the spirit of God which does seal us and assure us of our full redemption. It is not our outward profession, nor our external services, nor our being baptized, but it is the spirit of God in us, enlightening us and sanctifying us, which only can give us assurance that we are gods and heirs of salvation. These things can add to our insurance, being baptized in Christ, taking on the outward sign of our union with Christ and baptism can add to our insurance. The works of the spirit through us in their desire to do what is right and obey Christ can be uh, add to our insurance, can, can help bolster our insurance, but they are not the basis of our insurance. Our assurance is found in the unchanging person or the unchanging being of God. Because we are sealed by this God for the day of redemption as we are found in Christ. This is symbolized in the book of Revelation in chapter 14. In chapter 13 of Revelation, we are told of the marking or the sealing of the beast. But in chapter 14, we are told of another marking or sealing. 
In verse 1, it says, Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And we are further told that these marked ones, these that have the seal of the Spirit, are also worshipers of God because they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth, and they are blameless. It says there in between, after verse uh, 1 that they sang a new song. They engaged in holy worship of God as being marked by him. What is it to learn and to understand if it is not to end in praise of our God? If it's not to end in, in the uh, unified living that we are called to as believers, specifically here in four, that we would let no unwholesome word proceed from our mouth, but that our speech would be good for edification so that it will give grace to those who hear. Oh, I know we fail. I know we fail at this all the time. But it is not according to that. We recognize that in our failure, we go and disrupt and we oppose the will of the Spirit of God. But our assurance is in the sealing of the Spirit for the day of redemption. John Newton in 1774 wrote these words, and I'll close with them. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He, was washed, he has washed us with his blood. He has brought us near to God. Let us praise and join the chorus of the saints enthroned on high. Here they trusted him before us. Now their praises fill the sky. Thou has washed us with thy blood. Thou art worthy lamb of God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that we can come to your word and we can find that you reveal yourself to us according to your promises to do so. We thank you that you call us to engage not only our hearts, but our minds in the understanding of your word so that we would be complete persons. We do give praise to you that we see you in scripture as self-existent, unchanging, infinite, eternal, in need of nothing unable to decrease so that as you promise to do something, it is sure that it will be done. What glorious mysteries there are in understanding this and grasping this with just the fingers of our minds, Lord, knowing that you are incomprehensible. May our minds not be overawed so that our lips are silent but may you fill our hearts with praise and may it overflow in wholesome words to our neighbors and certainly in praise to the one true and living God. We give you praise this morning and thanksgiving in our hearts to you. We do ask these things 
In the name of Christ our Lord, amen.